0: Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is a board certified executive coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best selling author, award winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks.
1: Greetings, leaders. Thanks for joining us on The Leadership Window. This is episode 99.5. That's right. When you run your own podcast, you get to name the episodes whatever you want. We've already had episode 99, and episode 100 in two weeks is being reserved for a very special purpose. Don't miss that. Stay with us. Stay tuned. You'll see what it's all about. We've just got some big announcements about Where the company's going and what we're doing. We got some cool things to just sort of unveil. And we're shifting gears, going to a new level. We're excited about it. So I thought what I would do, this podcast, The Leadership Window, is three years old this week. And we've, as I said, had 99 episodes. And we rank number six on Feedspot's global ranking of podcasts in our category in our genre, nonprofit leadership, we came on that list, I want to say about a year into the show, at number 13. We've been as high as number five, we're currently at number six, and I only say that, Feedspot by the way, is the world's largest human curated database of blogs and podcasts. Of you name the podcast, it's on there. They, they rank everything. I don't know how they do it. They've got algorithms that look at the social media paths and the number of listens per episode and the number of episodes per month and all, all of this different stuff. I don't know where they, all, where they get all their stats, but we're getting consistently over 3,000 listens a week, even though we don't air weekly. We air every other week but the show is getting a lot of visibility. There's a lot of people that have tuned into the show, made it work, and I just wanna say thank you for that because it really helps other nonprofit leaders and leaders in general get really good content for free. So wherever you get your podcasts, I hope you're sharing this with folks. I hope you tell people, hey, there's a great podcast on nonprofit leadership and leadership in general. Here it is, you should check it out. If you wanna send them an episode, this might be the one to send them because what I thought I would do before we have our 100th episode and make some announcements about where the company is going. Um, I thought we'd share some of my kind of favorite, not necessarily moments, but just types of content that we've had. And, uh, we put this together and as we put it together, I have to say, I realized that every one of the clips that you're going to hear in this episode come from an author, a consultant, a coach, uh a business leader, someone who is an expert in leadership. None of these clips I don't think uh are from the CEOs in the nonprofit sector. And we've had a number of them. And I don't know, I just decided I would make this particular episode clips from the leadership side and then uh down the road we'll have a best of featuring some of our amazing and extraordinary nonprofit leaders and some of the things that they're working on. Um, the, this was really hard to do. I wanted to keep this episode around that one hour mark. Like we have all of our other episodes, uh, or I could have gone on and on and on. It was hard to pick from 99 episodes, the, the clips that were the best. And, and if you're listening to this and you're one of the guests in the last 99, and you're not in this best of, or these highlights. Just know I it was, this was very difficult, and I just had to narrow it down. Otherwise, it would have been a three-hour show. But what I thought I would do is just give an example of the kinds of content that we have on the show. So if you've just tuned in and you've just started listening to the Leadership Window, uh, or, or again, you want to share this episode with someone who wants to check it out and find out what it's all about, this is a sampling of the kinds of things we talk about on this show. And we're going to get right to it, and I'm going to start with a clip from episode two. So this is three years ago, and I think this is the fitting place to start because Dr. Jim Smith, who is the founder and president of Leadership Systems Incorporated, a 30-plus year trainer and coach at the Center for Creative Leadership, one of the true pioneers, if not the origin of the modern-day executive coaching is my mentor my coach my trainer um, the the man in the company that initially certified me as a leadership coach gave me that training gave me that credibility and for whom i've done uh, just a whole lot of wonderful adjunct work with i have a proud partnership with leadership systems incorporated and uh, I can't say enough about Dr. Jim Smith. He was, of course, my first guest for that reason. He he is he gets a lot of credit for the success of the Jinx Perspective company, of this podcast, of my coaching career and success. He gets a whole lot of credit for it because of everything that he's done to develop me, strengthen me, inspire me, train me, coach me, show me examples. And this is a clip from the first episode where he was covering. uh, LSI did a a research project for us, uh, contacting a number of their corporate clients. And when I say their corporate clients, we're talking—they have from State Farm to Siemens, Price Waterhouse Coopers, the military, uh, you name it. They—they cover. uh, He—he's coached four-star generals and Fortune 500 company CEOs. They did a research project reaching out to a sampling of their clients to find out what are the primary leadership tenets that are most important in those companies. And he arrived at eight of them. And this is a clip of him talking about one of them, which is awareness. And in the coaching world, what we do as coaches is try to help our coachees become more aware. So this is Dr. Jim Smith talking about the importance of that awareness and his, uh, description of what we call micro awareness. Here's Dr. Smith.
2: I've often taught the coaches that I was training at the center for creative leadership or my own coaches for leadership systems incorporated that when you're able to, with a coachee, or maybe even a colleague that you're leading when you can catch them in the moment. So, so a micro awareness moment to me would be, you know, having a, a, thesis about something they might need to work on or maybe they've even shared it or it's come up through the assessments they want to work on you know speaking less or they want to work on speaking more whatever the needle might be need to move in their behavior but whenever I can catch them on it uh, both positively and developmentally so we'll take both angles so catching them positively would look like they're doing and trying that behavior so we might give them some feedback or give them a a positive uh, moment of what they did well and talk to them about that and really make it clear that they did that and did it well. So positive reinforcement, as most everyone knows, is a lot more powerful than the uh, negative or the development feedback. The other would be on the developmental, right? So we've got this goal they're trying to work on, raise their um, awareness on doing this better. If they didn't do it well, then I might put on that coaching hat and say, hey, how did that go, that presentation? Or how did that sales call go or whatever we're working on? And what's fascinating, Patrick, is they'll often say, well, it went pretty well. It went pretty well, you know. Pretty good, and I'll uh, be a little surprised because, in my view, it didn't go as well. And so, rather than saying no, you're wrong, it didn't go well. I'll continue with a few more assessment questions and say, say, so how did you know that went well? Give me a one to ten on that, and then as we begin to get into the micro assessment and awareness of that particular behavior. Then the needle begins to maybe begin to move, or at least they begin to see the range that it could move. For instance, they might give me a, well, I guess it was about a, about a seven. I'd say, okay, well, seven out of 10, if 10 is good, what, what would it take to be a, a full 10? And then they begin to think a little deep, more deeply. They begin to say, well, I guess I could have done A, B, or C. And then I might come in as a coach and say, yes, I really like how you're thinking, that would have really moved the needle. What would it take to get you to do that next time? So mm-hmm. they, you know, now have raised their awareness. They have a little bit of a micro plan to up it a little bit. Or the question might be, what would it uh, look like if you did that next time? And get them to envision a little more of that success having done that differently. So, you know, that, that would be one. Either getting me to assess it in the moment or someone else and asking them to be sure to ask for a little feedback after their presentation or their meeting so that they can get a little bit more clarity on that.
1: So uh, Jim Smith has been on the show a couple of times, so go back and check out those episodes. Um, I'm going to move on to Ron Harvey, and this is actually episode three. And Ron has been on the show several times, and he's what I call our sort of semi-regular guest. Ron is the... Vice President, Chief Operating Officer at Global Core Strategies and Consulting. He is a very good friend. He is a colleague. He is a John Maxwell Certified Coach. He is an amazing presenter and uh, a super authentic individual. He is on our advisory board at The Jinx Perspective. And you'll find out why he comes on the show regularly just by listening to this clip. This was our first visit together, and we were talking about just value, adding value as a leader, adding value as a consultant, and really listening to what our clients need, which would apply to nonprofit leaders out there, listening to what your people need. What your donors want, what your employees need from you. Uh, so take a little bit, uh, take a listen to a little bit of this conversation I had again three years ago with Ron Harvey. All right, listeners. When when Ron walked into the the studio, right? Yes. Or The studio, Ron. <laughs> when Ron walked into the studio, he said, "I'm here to serve you." He put his phone down. He put his notes down. He sat back. He, he became present instantly, and he said the words I think three times: "I'm here to serve you." Yes. So Ron lives it. Uh, and I, you do, you live it. Uh, you made me think of this coin right here. Yes. You've, uh, so you've seen these. Yes. You, we, we coin people, you don't have a military background. That's, so right. We do challenge do you, that's right. Challenge. coins. Challenge. Okay. Yes. Command, so, or, or commander coins. Yes. Yes. And so my, my, uh, oldest brother who passed away, um, uh, earlier this year, this was one that he was given he spent his year in yes. and around the military so he was in the he was in the army and then he served as a civilian he served the military his entire career and david was a calibration technician or a metrologist yes. <laughs> um for the weapons systems on the f-16 fighting falcon jet wow now you know this for, for our list a calibration technician And a metrologist, we're talking micro, 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 micro accuracy (laughs) kind of stuff, like no room for error, very precise sorts of measurements. You know, you think it's kind of important on an (laughs) F-16 weapon system to (laughs) to have it right. So this coin, and he had a drawer full of these coins, just, I mean, uh, he had been handed them by his commanders for years uh, because of excellence. This one says, uh, the right data in the right place at the right time every time. Yes. Now this, we're not talking about data right now, but what that says to me is excellence, intentional excellence, consistency, and excellence. Yes. So I keep this in my pocket when I'm coaching, when I'm podcasting, when I'm facilitating a meeting, this is in my pocket. I I oftentimes will take it out and just kind of hold it in my hand as a reminder, you have to do this excellent every time. Yes. You can't phone this in. You can't mail this in this time. Even with the system where I'm like comfortable with what I do,
3: I still have to say, but how do I get more at like every time? Yeah, excellent. Every that, time. Which I think is super important. I mean, in, in, in the analogy that you use, that your brother shared with you, is when you think of leadership, do we think the same way he thought in his role and his job? Because getting it right is non negotiable. Yeah. And I think sometimes we, we think we have tomorrow, we have the next opportunity with that person that depends on us. Even if you for me, for leadership, Patrick, leadership is about serving those that depend on you the most when they need you the most. Mm. And when someone needs you and they're dependent on you, you're obligated to get it right. Here's the challenge, though, right?
1: What is right yes. in, in leadership? Right can be great. I mean, there's there's more than one right answer. Yes. Sometimes it's what's the best right yes. for this time. And am I willing to maybe get it wrong in the effort of getting it right? Like right is not as easily defined as it is when you're a calibration technician. And as, and as precise as
3: it has to be, it's precise. You yes. know exactly what yes. the mark is.
1: In leadership, you don't always know exactly what the mark is.
3: Yeah, I agree that from my perspective, from my lens, that's very accurate. That's a true statement. What's right for the person you're serving? Mm. And that shifts from person to person. What's right and for what, them. Yeah, and okay. what, what's right for my, my 12 year old daughter today can be absolutely ineffective tomorrow. Mm. And so do you pause long enough to be present, be in the moment and what's right at that second? Because that's how you get the context. Yeah, that's how you get the context. Oh, that's good. Of it. That's yes. good. Yes. So for me, I tell people and, and very rarely do I use right or wrong. I'm with you on that. I'll use effective or ineffective mm. because I can measure that day to day. And so what I, you know, with 21 years of military service my leadership style shifted and adjusted with everybody that I engaged because I met them where they were and what did they need?
1: I could listen to Ron Harvey all day. (laughs) I just love the way he presents things. Uh, My next highlight is from episode six, Nick Nanton down in Florida. He is a serial entrepreneur. I don't even know what to call him. I mean, he's an attorney. He's a celebrity branding um, um, agent and expert He is, I think most notably, uh, oh, he's a, he's a Nashville songwriter and musician. I think most notably he is a, uh, award-winning, um, filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker. He has won over 20, I think the count is somewhere up near 25 Emmy awards for his films um, I've been to some of his premieres of his films on the red carpet in New York. I've seen some of his films, his latest one. Uh, if you're a sports fan and you know who Dick Vitale is with ESPN, the legendary basketball commentator, the, uh, the ESPN films documentary on his life, uh, Dickie V, I think it's called. Uh, that's a Nick Nanton film. And, and so my conversation with Nick who is also on our advisory board at the Jinx perspective, my conversation with Nick in this particular highlight, I was asking him about how do you lead when you've got multiple teams? I mean, he's got his filmmaking crew. He's got his PR agency crew. He's got his family. He's got these other ventures he's in. How do you lead across those platforms? And I think where it led him to, to, um, talk was just how he thinks about leadership in general and how he defines it listen to this clip i'm curious not just you know what your leadership bent is on leading a team i'm curious about your maybe your leadership challenges that you experience and some of the keys of getting through those in terms of handling lots of different entities and teams on diverse projects where contextual leadership, you know, takes over. I mean, directing a film, you know, probably involves some different leadership tenants than, you know, I don't know, running a branding agency, for example, some of the same, some may be different. How do you manage leadership and what are your challenges in managing leadership across all these different entities and projects you're doing at the same time?
4: Um, another great question. I, I, Man, I just try to show up and and serve in the best way I can. I, I don't want to sound trite, but it's, you know, a, a friend of mine, Kenny Thomas was one of the lead Rangers in the black Hawk down crisis in Mogadishu. We've all seen, most everyone's seen the movie or read the book or whatever. Um, But, you know, he told me his definition of leadership. He said, leadership is the example you set for the people you serve. And I think so many people get, I love that definition, by the way. It's the best definition of leadership I've ever heard. And I love the fact that he, leadership is about serving. It's not about ordering people around. It's not, if you serve everyone that you are leading well enough, they will, they will, I mean, in that case, they'll take gunfire for you. They will you know, break down walls, they'll march for three days, they'll do whatever. So if you are a servant leader, like you serve well, then everyone... Everything else comes together. Now, does that mean I believe the world is full of sunshine and lollipops? No. Sometimes I wish it was, but you got to have hard conversations with people sometimes like, hey, I- I'm going to need you to show up differently than that, or if that's your goal, maybe we need to readdress this. Um, I try to—I don't I don't love conflict. I certainly don't. Uh, anyone who knows me knows that. Um, I don't—I uh, I would say, and I found a way to um, most of my career to just— only work with those who show up the way I like them to show up. I mean, <laughs> one of the benefits of, like, filming documentaries, like, if someone doesn't do a great job, I don't have to hire them again. If I think they're so far off the reservation, it's not going to work. You know, if I think they're close or, like, you know, I've got... um project being done in my house right now. And I was a guy was referred to me by my parents and just a little simple communication thing that I think he's a really good kid. I think he's going to do great work, but it's just something he probably has never thought about. And I, I feel like if he's open to it, if I share something with him, that he'll be super open to it. And I think it will help him out. I'm going to do that. And so I'm going to serve him well by trying to share with him. I'm not mad at him. I'm not going to lecture him and say, Hey, I was thinking I I saw this thing and I didn't, it really wasn't clear to me. And if you just were to ask, add, you know, as a part of your, your service, you'll notify people of this during like whatever. And so I try to correct it when I can, if I think it's, if I think it's useful, if I think that we can get somewhere with this, if not, I really will just, you know, not hire the person again, unless they ask. Yeah. Well, Um,
1: serving people and correcting people are not mutually exclusive. I mean, you're actually serving them when you tell them, Hey, I need you to show up differently because you're raising their game. You're elevating them.
4: You are. But I also try to, I try to figure out who is, who would take, if you're not going to, if you're not interested in me right. helping you, I'm not going to just force it upon That is like, I don't need to hear myself talk.
1: So, uh, I love that last line. I don't, I don't need to just uh, hear myself talk. That's definitely a servant attitude in uh, leadership. Um, my next one, if you thought there was energy in Nick Nanton's voice, wait till you hear this next one. Uh, this is Dee, Dee Wong. Um, I co- we, Her nickname is Speedy Didi. Uh, She is Dame Didi Wong. She was knighted a couple of years ago. And this is just another extraordinary, just sort of global uh, influencer. Uh, Didi is the founder of the Yes Academy. She is a renowned keynote speaker. In fact, I met her at the United Nations when she and I were both keynote speakers at a global entrepreneurship initiative. Uh, I think that was in 2018, uh, maybe 2019, I don't remember. But um, since we met, Dee has also come on our advisory board. She's is now uh, running a, a philanthropic foundation. Dee uh, came up in uh, Hong Kong, has lived in London, has lived in L.A., uh, I think Austin, She's now in the Fort Lauderdale area in Florida. She's just all over the place. And Didi is someone who seems to be one of these people that knows everybody, has done everything, and she moves with a tremendous amount of speed in everything she does. And so we had this conversation about what it means to be speedy and what is the right mix? And what's we, particularly we were talking about the relationship between speed and trust. Listen into this conversation. When I asked the question about leadership culture differences, you went straight to speed. And here's what that makes me think is, there's a book, one of my favorite books actually, um, uh, by Stephen M.R. Covey. So Stephen Covey of, of the Seven Habits fame, this is his son. And he wrote a book called the speed of trust and and in it, he gives an economic formula for trust. He says, when, when trust is high, speed is fast and cost is lower. And when trust is low, things slow down and cost more. And I
5: love that. And he gives a lot,
1: he gives a lot of examples around it. He gives just a ton of business examples and just global event examples but I wonder if you see that link in your experience. Is trust higher in, in Hong Kong than it is in LA? Is, you, know, yes. do you do you find there a link between speed and trust?
6: Yes, I really love that thought Patrick. See, I'm learning from you, as I said. Um, I do think so. If you think about people sending out proposals and waiting for you to answer, you know, just in general, right? Uh, the faster you act, that there's more trust. So it absolutely has that great equation in there. For me, it's in Hong Kong. It's so fast. It's because people have that trust and have that um, discipline, and also have the. Uh, I don't know if it's because it's the Chinese culture. Just when you say something, it's true, and you you do it. You know that there's definitely a trust element in there. Mm. And that that makes me really think that that could be the reason why people are, or, or if I'm just thinking like, as I get, as I keep thinking about the cashier, people working really fast to get you out the door, it's all about making money more and making money faster as well. Mm. Like people go into restaurants, they they order, the food comes and there's no lingering. They you know go in, eat, order food, eat, and then bill comes and out, out the door, right? Yeah. And and I feel like it's really the turnaround time, the, the, you know, and, and you know when you go in, you trust that the food's going to be good. You know exactly what you want. That is the kind of idea I'm giving out for Hong Kong. It's really like that for the all the little cafes and all the little side street restaurants like that. Um, I'm trying to make it kind of an understanding in not just business, but in the general everyday uh, you know, happenings of 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 the life there. Um, and I, I do think it's also the people the employees work faster because they know you know the bosses are all about turnaround and coming in and coming out and, and getting it done and all of that as well. So that's Hong Kong for you. LA is definitely not like that.
1: <laughs> it's it's fascinating because I'm picturing um, tell me tell me if I have this right. It sounds to me like, Yes, it's higher trust, but really it's just, it's an expectation. You're, it's a given you're expected to move at this pace. You're expected to, to, you know, if you say it, you're expected to do it. There is no, you know, it just, it just is. It's the, it's the accepted norm.
6: Right. Right and, and people respect and they're scared of their bosses a lot in Hong Kong. <laughs> I don't know what it is, the leadership uh, out there, it's of a little bit more uh, a differentiation between a higher hierarchy, right? There is a definite if you are the boss, you will act like the boss and you will be put into your place. That's definitely a more of a hierarchy there. Here in America, even if I'm the boss, I'm still very friendly. And we might go out for drinks, we may go out for and hang out socially, you know, so it's it's really a, a good topic to talk about, the difference between leading and being friends with people you're leading or leading and is keeping that separate and being the, the profession, that, that's your title and that's your profession and you don't mingle with your employees. I think Hong Kong is definitely the latter uh, of, of the two.
1: I mean, this is stuff that just is making me think all over again about my own organizational leadership and the leaders that I'm coaching, uh, just th- that relationship between speed and trust and how trust is built and how trust is really an expectation. We're going to jump ahead uh, to episode 25. And my good friend Hilde Gottlieb was, uh, is the, um, runs an organization called Creating the Future. She used to call herself a nonprofit consultant. And that's when I met her when I was running a local United way in Virginia, she came up and uh, from Tucson, Arizona and did some, some consulting with us uh, some of the funders in the region, the United way, the community foundation, uh, the regional foundation and helping us figure out how to collaborate better as funders while we were asking the nonprofits that we fund to collaborate more how are we collaborating as funders um but today Hildy runs creating the future which is really about helping other nonprofit consultants help the sector better and uh and it's much more than that but her uh tenet is that we change our thinking by changing the questions that we ask and if you've listened to me much or you know me much, you know that questions are the number one tool. That's a coach's number one tool. And they're powerful things. Questions are so powerful. And Hilde in this uh, clip that I'm about to play for you is talking about how we change our thinking by changing the question. Listen in.
0: It is a no-brainer if I were to say our actions create our results. There you go. Duh, of mm-hmm.
1: course. Mm-hmm
0: but what creates our actions is our thinking
1: our thoughts yeah
0: and what we don't what we tend to do in the, the world of social innovation is all around changing our actions we'll do something different well that didn't work what could we do that's different if we keep doing the same a whole bunch of different things without changing the thinking then we're actually doing the same thing it's great and 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 years ago it's it's how the tagline at creating the future changed the questions changed the world came about Um, years ago, someone said at some point, well, you know, it's hard to change your thinking. And we said, no, it's not. If you change the questions you're asking, it changes your thinking. And what we started to realize is that our assumptions and our beliefs are actually answers to questions we don't even realize we're asking. Mm, So, so a simple example is the world flat or is it round? Um, I have assumptions. It's either flat or it's round. Mm. I believe it's either flat or it's round. The question is what's going to happen. If I go out there, uh, there's there, all of our assumptions and all of our beliefs are actually answers to questions that we don't realize we're asking. Mm. And so if we can be mindful about the questions, That will shift our thinking and that will shift our actions. And that's what catalytic thinking, it's why inserting, just as you said, inserting that one question at that one time Mm -hmm. um, can just completely shift a conversation from going into the weeds and spiraling down to, oh, wow, that is possible. And we could do that.
1: Uh, We're going to jump to episode well, this isn't a jump. We've got a few episodes in a row here. Episode twenty six was the first time that Charles Weathers has come on the program. Charles is founder and president of the Weathers Group, um, also here in South Carolina. And really, I I I call him the kind of the the standard. Um, he really set the bar long before I arrived in South Carolina. Charles was setting the bar for how to bring excellence in consulting to the nonprofits. And I've learned so much from him. He celebrated, I think 20 years this year, um, we're all right here out of Columbia, South Carolina. And um, we're talking about <laughs> uh, Charles and I have truly conversations like they're less of an interview and they're more of a conversation. And we were talking about values and values statements And I think he and I found out we share uh, a philosophy on this and how organizations approach this concept of values. Take a listen.
7: We put values on the wall. We put them on the website. We Mm -hmm. put them on the board manual, the employee manual, the back of the business card. We very seldom put them into practice. Yeah. And one of the things that we've been working with organizations with over the last couple of years is becoming what we call a VIP organization, values in and practice. And, and how do you become? A, we think
1: a, we're practicing them, don't we, we? Don't we assume we're practicing oh them because goodness. because they're on the page, we must be practicing them. They must be there. They're written down. Right. Watch this. I even
7: know them. I can list them. Yeah. You know, yeah. we create nice little acronyms that go along with it. So yeah. we must be. Pra- no, we're not practicing. Right. Them. right. And so to help the values manifest, the first thing is we have to recognize what's the difference between a value and a nice business practice. What's the difference between a value and a nice idea or a lofty mm-hmm. idea. Again, defining important terms. We define values as non-negotiable principles. We will not compromise that guide our decision-making mm-hmm. value. Mm-hmm. And the truth is at that point from that definition, guess what? You don't have a lot of values. You don't mm-hmm. have 15, 20, 30, 40 values, right? You got about five or six things that you're saying, you know what? No matter what we do, these right here will guide those decisions.
1: Yeah. And we're not talking about policies and procedures. When we say that, no we're talking about the core values, we're talking about the primary parameters of how we approach what we do.
7: Exactly. And and here's when you know, it's a value, Patrick, regardless of the money I offer you, the fame, fortune, notoriety, recognition, you're saying we ain't doing that. It can't be bought. Not that we're not doing that. And so that's when people, that's why that values conversation has to be deeper than we value integrity. I'll give Mm. you a quick example. People love telling me, Charles, we value honesty. Now the, Think about the word "honest." I say, great. Yeah. Then I'll say, when's the last time you told a lie? Now, my grandmother wouldn't want me to say the word lie, but I just said it. Yeah. And people <laughs> say, well, it wasn't really a lie. It was more of this. I said, but it wasn't totally honest. And they have excuses for that. Yeah. So I said, be careful what you say you value. What does it really look like in practice? And that's a deeper, more meaningful conversation. And it's more than just the word accountability on the wall. How many boards or nonprofits or others have you seen say, we value accountability, but we don't even adhere to our own bylaws, which we have the power to change if we need to. Mm-hmm.
1: So here's the power of that conversation. <laughs> I'm, I'm wanting to dig into the conversation again with him right there. Uh, so many things come into mind. Uh, The next episode that we're going to feature is, uh, my guest was Mentor Dial from the UK, a former brand executive with L'Oreal in their Redken brand, and a best-selling author and speaker today. Uh, This was a conversation about modeling authenticity in leadership and really knowing ourselves. Listen to Mentor.
8: We need to get more close to who we are because then we're going to be understanding what really motivates us. And that drives us the energy. So, when we got to do all this stuff where we have so many choices, so many activities to do, well, how are we going to, what reservoir are we going to generate? So, you could end up being the rah rah leader, if you will, to the extent that you have tapped into what's important to you at a personal level. You're being authentic to yourself, only you looking in the mirror. You don't need anyone else to tell you that you're being authentic. You know you are, or at least the, the most authentic version of you that can be. And that is what's going to help you generate the energy to drive you to get through all the molasses, the lethargy, the infighting, the, the bad news, the, the political decisions that go against you, because that's life. So life is full of bad news and full of puddles that we have to walk through or run through. So how do you drive that? So if you can model that behavior... Which includes accepting and showing your weaknesses, then you can allow your team to follow on and have that same kind of, and give them the time to understand themselves, and and to understand that it's okay not to be okay. And and once you do that, you sort of level set the foundations are so much stronger, and people are going to know why they're doing what they're doing. They still know there's lots of shit, and we got. Then people have to sometimes get fired. That that also is part of it. There's ways to do that with empathy. But once you get everybody understand how they're contributing to doing something more important that's making the world a better place, well, then you are little by little, going to. that's how you generate energy.
1: Uh, this is fun listening back to these. A uh, number of years ago, I went to a, a a DEI conference in Greenville, South Carolina, curated by Dr. Nika White. And this next guest was a speaker, a keynote speaker at that event and, or, or a workshop speaker, but it was, I described it as the best conference workshop that I'd ever attended. I mean, this woman had such energy, such wonderful content, so engaging, so on point and relevant that I said, boy, there's a couple of things. One, I've got to get her on the stage at a couple of other organizations that I'm a part of. And the other is I got to get her on this show. And when we got her on the show, she, she, her, her book at the time was um, leading your parents. And it's all about how to be a millennial leader, which she is and leading people that are old enough to be your parents and the unique challenges that come with that. And so she's a generational expert and a generational leadership expert. And given the last several years of where our, our country and sector have really been focusing on with regard to DE and I, she has started putting together the relationship or the intersection of generational dynamics and race equity. It was, it's a fascinating, thing. And I would encourage you to go back to episode 28 and listen to the entire thing. But here's just a short snip of Raven discussing that intersection.
9: When we talk about Gen Z and their expectations, if we want to survive as organizations, and certainly if we want to thrive as organizations, we have to understand those expectations and begin to position ourselves as organizations to meet them. And because it's not just they're our future leaders and they're our future employees, but they are our current buyers and they will, they will be our um, customers, excuse me, and they will be our future customers to come. And here's the, the reality. The United States is only growing more and more racially diverse. Every generation becomes more racially diverse more ethnically diverse so gen z is the most racially and ethnically diverse generation we've seen in the united states gen alpha the the generation after them will be even more diverse and so the trend is there that's why i speak about getting future ready because it really is about getting future ready through diversity or being prepared for the racial ethnic um you know, in every other form of diversity that is encroaching. And so that intersection is about that business and moral, that generational business and moral case for racial equity, but it's also about the reality that this diversity, equity, and inclusion work is really generational and it has transpired generationally. So for a lot of boomers, right, it was about affirmative action. You, You had to do it. At least that's what they're their introduction to de work is and has been in the workforce. It's like, oh, okay, here's these, these, the government's telling me I have to do this, and we just have to do it so we won't get in trouble. That was affirmative action. Good in theory, good in practice, and it started the wheel, right? It's, so we'll leave it there. <laughs> so there is affirmative action for baby boomers. And then Gen X came along and said, hey, this affirmative action thing, It's just not enough. We really need to be focused on diversity because it's the right thing to do. And, we think it's the smart thing to do. And so the movement became about diversity and that was with Gen X. We have Gen X to thank for really kind of starting this diversity movement inside of the workplace. Mm-hmm. And then these folks called millennials came along. This is all generational, right? These folks called millennials came along and said, hey, you know, it's really good that we have diversity at the table. We've got difference at the table. That's that's awesome. However, there's still people at the table who don't have voices. So we need more than diversity, we need inclusion. And so the movement became D&I, it became diversity and inclusion with millennials. And then, and now I should say, today, Many folks will see that there's another letter that's been added to this work, D, E and I, and that E is all about equity. And that really is being spearheaded by those younger millennials and those Gen Zers who are saying, hey, it's great that we have difference at the table. It's also awesome that, that we've given folks a voice at the table but equity says some voices at the table are still louder because of historic marginalization and oppression and inequality, et cetera. So some folks at the table actually need microphones for volume parity. And that is what equity is. And so that's the generational evolution of DEI and i work. And it's my job to help folks understand and see that so that we better understand where we're going.
1: So... Um you, you start to see the interesting intersections that she makes there, how every generation has viewed this race equity work again, go back and listen to that entire episode. My next highlight comes from episode 55. And this, um, this amazing, fascinating woman came to us from all the way over in France and is uh, her name is Sophie McLean, and she is discussing self awareness and the ego and how we can choose to end our own suffering. What was fascinating to me about meeting her was that she she was born in Algeria, educated in Morocco and France, with a professional career in both the United States and the UK. She has been a helicopter pilot, a teacher a designer, a relief worker, a war refugee, a CEO, a United Nations representative on the commission on the status of women's hunger. She's been shot at, shipwrecked, widowed. She's lived on a farm, a boat, a penthouse, And it's just an amazing, uh, and as a wisdom teacher, she has spent decades leading transformational seminars to over 80,000 people around the world of all ethnicities and ages and religions and social backgrounds, um, all engaged with the universal ex- existential question of who and what am I? And what is my life about in this clip from that episode we uh, we get to talk a little bit more about yet another leadership definition. Listen in.
5: So I read somewhere a definition of a leader, and I cannot remember where I read it. So I'm so sorry, whoever said it, uh, I'm giving you credit without knowing who you are. But so I heard somebody say, a leader is someone that embodies the aspiration and the dreams of others so someone that embodies the aspiration and the dream of others i just absolutely adore the generosity of a leader then mm. right somebody mm-hmm. that is willing to bring up the best in themselves to serve the people they lead that is willing to apply their gift and their vision so that they can um, embody the aspiration and the dream of others right so To be able to do that, Patrick, you do need a level of education in what it is to be a human being and knowing yourself that will allow you to hear, listen, communicate with other human beings that you want to lead. Uh,
1: Our next clip is from episode 57, and we had two guests on, husband and wife. This is Michael and Audrey Sahota. They are consultants, authors, trainers, and co-founders of Shift 314 Incorporated, where they teach leaders to evolve themselves and their organizations. And their book that we were talking about, which I highly recommend, Uh, If you go to episode 57 on our website, on our podcast page, there's a link to the book. It's called Leading Beyond Change, A Practical Guide to Evolving Business Agility. A title really captured my attention, Leading Beyond Change. And in this segment, much like we did with Charles Weathers, we're talking about values and how companies approach values and what Michael and Audrey call values programs. So you'll get an
10: idea of sort of their thinking and how they think about organizational culture. Um, values programs are pretty much, in our opinion, a huge trap. Mm. People who think culture equals values program um, are missing the boat mm. and sub-optimizing in a huge way. We can say a values program could be valuable if the leaders use it to model the behavior and only use it on themselves. To try to use values programs on anyone else, in our view, is irresponsible, and um, not competent management.
1: Now, t- pause there. Uh, Tell me what you mean by values program. I know what value statements are.
10: So, so value statements. So as a leader, to say we as leaders created these value statements and we are going to live this way. And please score us on how we show up this way because this is how we want to show up as your leaders. That's really beautiful. Or in alternative, leaders mm. who know, understand what co-creation is and co-create the values as equals with everyone else in the company. that everyone creates the values that they collectively want to have follow and people voluntarily choose to follow them uh, and hold themselves accountable to following them. That's a very different way of handling values. Mm -hmm. So most of how values programs are handled in organizations are very uh, immature and actually quite destructive in our, in our opinion.
1: Okay. Our next clip comes from episode 59. We were talking about succession planning with Nikkei Anani. Niké is the author of *Lifetime to Legacy: A New Vision for Multi Generational Family Businesses*. Uh, she's the co-founder of African Family Firms, a Pan-African Association of Family Businesses focused on promoting generational wealth and generational legacies on the African continent. Um, we we had this conversation she's from Nigeria. Um, We had this conversation about succession planning, and of course, she specializes in family companies, but many of these concepts, if not all of them, apply just to general succession planning uh, with nonprofits. Many nonprofits, in fact, suffer from what we call founder syndrome, and uh, it's, it's, it's a little akin to that, some of these challenges, but I was asking Nikkei her advice on how to help um, how, to, how to hand off an organization, for, for lack of a better term, how do you hand off an organization in good shape? That's the conversation that I'm going to play a clip for you here.
11: We don't want this rock star CEO um, that creates key man or key woman risk and um, has a lot of the institutional memory, their heads and their hearts and when they leave folks are kind of lost like where do we start so we want to create an institution we want to really create systems processes procedures move from a journey of informal to formal and obviously not everything can be formalized not everything can be documented but with family businesses particularly this is an area that is tends to be an issue is there's a lot of informality and the founder drives decision-making to the point where he, he or she would only outsource tasks to be done without explaining the reason for, or how did we arrive at said decision, right? Mm -hmm. So it's surrounded by helpers and not co-builders. So we need to be able to build an institution, um, where we document the strategy, we document the processes, we document the procedures, we have SOPs, we have departments, we have measuring, um, such that when someone else steps into the shoes of the leader, they have clarity as to how we got here and how we can move forward.
1: Our next clip is from Daniel Matalan, who is leading a movement, uh, the growth of a movement that he calls Is There Enough? Wonderful question. And we were having the conversation. If you go to istherenough.org, you will see the um, global contract with each other <laughs> that he is trying to promote. And it's a fascinating concept. And he is asserting that humanity's biggest threat, biggest existential threat is not climate change or tribalism or even inequality, but he asserts that our biggest existential threat is our inability to foster agreement with each other at the level we require to address our challenges. And in this part of the conversation we were talking about the difference between scarcity and abundance and daniel helped me think about a a more nuanced difference between abundance and enough because his question is not is there an overflow is there an abundance his question is is there enough and it's an interesting uh, mind shift so take a listen to this portion of this conversation Our organizations talk about there's only so much money in our community. There's only so many board members. There's only so much talent. or That's a big deal right now, people struggling to find talent. Everything is from this scarcity standpoint. Maybe talk a little bit about at a local level, at a conceptual, practical level, how does this shift to an abundance mindset, a creativity mindset, an innovation mindset, however you want to frame it, Um, What are some things that our leaders can and should maybe be thinking about in their local community to start helping move toward, yeah, maybe more agreement, but just a different mindset on the scarcity of resources to achieve a social mission. I'm just going to let you kind of carry that and we'll wrap it up with a couple of other uh, general leadership questions that I ask all my guests, but I would just love to hear your, you know, what thoughts come to your mind in the context of that question.
12: In the book, we talk about how to produce agreement. What are the guidelines? What are the rules, so to speak, of the game of agreement? And one of them is, let's try to have one conversation at a time. And which one are we having? Which is the premier? It's kind of like that thing we talked about earlier about what is the appropriate question. Otherwise, you solve the wrong problem. So I think one of the things leaders need to do is distinguish and isolate what are we most focused on, Right now. Keep the conversation to that. And again, going back to earlier where I said, let's just blast all the negativity out of the room by not telling people to be positive, but asking them what they're negative about, put it up on a whiteboard and look at it together. Don't judge it. You know, don't tell people why they should be thinking abundantly. When people are in scarcity, telling them to think about abundance, I I didn't find worked for 30 years. I tried it very well, you know, in most cases. And, um, and I've been on both sides of that. Somebody telling me there's abundance when I don't think so and telling somebody else when they don't think so. It just doesn't work very well. But great, I think beginning point. to transcend scarcity and abundance and describing what enough is, is quite a different thing. Again, which conversation are we having? Are we having a conversation about polar opposites? Because the other thing we discovered about agreement, this is a second piece from that chapter, is let's not dramatize in our expression with exaggeration right you talk about stephanie kelton before and people want to dismiss it as just printing money with no obligation and responsibility it ain't quite what she said and so you might start even if you vigorously ad- disagree with modern monetary theory of what part of what she's speaking of does have some truth and value now let's take down the rest right mm-hmm. this is also important internally in these organizations is okay let's recognize all the stuff that we have in place that is an obstacle. But the minute we start with these assertions that there's only so much money to go around, well, then that's all the money there is, folks. <clears throat> if you don't start asking the question of how do we bring in more money into what is clearly a hungry space, right? What are we going to do in order to establish? And I think also, you know, a nonprofit in particular clearly professionals recognize your nonprofit has to make a profit to sustain itself. That is definitely a topic for another day about how we don't talk about sustainability in the right way. That's also part of our core conversations. Absolutely. You know, and so we have to start thinking and acting uh, around those questions. And I'll add the final pieces. Once you determine what magical result that if you could pull it off, would change those circumstances, you must become definite about that even in the face of indefinite means to achieve it. I'll repeat this. We have to be absolutely definite on the goal. And we have to be as indefinite and flexible on how to get there because that becomes dogma, right? But I'll tell you in my professional work, I People will discover on Is There Enough a a link to our company, Impact Launchpad, uh, which is a for-profit social impact studio. And we're doing some really ambitious things there to the point that people fairly criticize us for doing too much, fair criticism. Uh, But when people have asked me directly is, how do you know you're going to pull this off? I have said, because I'm going to pull it off or die trying.
1: And we have one more highlight we want to share with you. And I chose this one because this just comes up so much in my coaching work of how leaders deal with stress and how leaders deal with burnout. And Dr. Kim Hires was on the show, met her at the Blue Ridge Institute, a conference of, uh, in the social sector that I attend each year. And um, Dr. Hires is an international keynote speaker, strategic consultant. She's a coach. Uh, she's dedicated to leadership development and helping leaders achieve their highest potential. And her work in doing that focuses on burnout prevention and cultivating cultures of well-being, um, which she's been doing for over a decade. And so, this is um, this is a clip I she has three red flags to look for the warning signs to look for, to figure out if you are experiencing burnout, which is an extremely dangerous thing. Her research on burnout, her professional research on this has really revealed some, some scary things about burnout. It's more than stress. It's um, it's a condition at which y- you can, you can be in some real emotional and even physical trouble. So uh, she's giving us the three flags and we're not going to cover all three of them in this clip, but to give you an idea of what she's talking about, she's talking a little bit about the first flag, which is exhaustion. Listen in.
13: It's three main red flags that we look for. The The first one is exhaustion. So, and when I say exhaustion, this isn't a, uh, oh, I can just take a quick vacation and feel recharged. You know, you can't sleep it off. You can't vacation it off. You are just so exhausted. The thought of work. You can be on a beach with with your toes in the sand, just having had, you know, nine hours worth of sleep. Life's good. Your belly is full. And you can see one email notification and all of a sudden, all of that feels undone right? Work triggers a level of exhaustion in you that you, you almost feel like you can't escape from. And we're right? not
1: talking about incidental exhaustion. We're not talking about, man, I worked really hard today because it was a long, stressful day and I had a lot of intense work. And at the end of the day, Whoo, I'm tired. We're not talking no. about that.
13: No, no, this is a nonstop. I feel like I can never turn off. When it comes to work, um, you're thinking about it constantly, and that's because once you, you've you reached that level of stress, right, if the work, is, if the stress is unrelenting, once you've reached the point where just the thought of work triggers a full-on stress response and you can't wind down, that's what we look for
1: well, that's it, folks. That's episode ninety-nine point five. Just sort of a little bit of a, a sampling of the kinds of content that we've had on this show over the last three years. It's been extraordinary. Really looking forward to the next three years, particularly the next year. Do not miss our next episode, episode one hundred. We're going to be sharing some things. It's not. It's more than a company announcement. We're 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 going through some rebranding. And announcing some new things but i want to talk about the value of some of these things within the sector and why we're doing what we're doing and how that applies to you so please don't miss it thanks for joining us i do hope you'll share this episode with some friends who might be interested in a good podcast because this is a great sampling of the kinds of things we talk about and i and we only covered a few clips out of 99 episodes so there's so much more thanks for making the show a success and we'll see you next time lead on